was reading an article a couple days ago about America's drinking habits. And in that article, they said that 10% of Americans are responsible for 60% of the alcohol consumed in America. And that shocked me because I had no idea that the United States had that many bass players. This is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville on a beautiful fall day. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. This show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's a creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is the way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Kevin Russell. Kevin is a singer and a songwriter, and you might know him from his bands The Gourds and Shiny Ribs. And you can find out everything you need to know about Kevin at shinyribs.org. I sat down with Kevin at his hotel room here in Nashville. He was in town visiting, and like I said last week, we planned on doing this for about two years and just never seemed to cross paths, so it was great to get to chat with Kevin. He had a lot of great stories, and uh, I decided I'd turn this into a two-parter. So here's part two of Kevin Russell. There was one time we were in a... I think we were somewhere in the middle of Arkansas. It usually happens in Arkansas for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was a beautiful night. We'd had a great gig. We were on our way home, but we were going to drive a little ways to get closer to home. And uh, we stopped uh, to piss. Everybody had to piss, so we all stopped. And uh, the stars were so bright, and we were just, you know, pissing and looking at the stars, probably peeing on our feet. But And uh, and we were, like, captivated. Everybody was enchanted. And we got on top of the van and just laid there for a while, just talking and everybody was happy and the stars were beautiful and then we were like all right we better get going so we got back in the van and we uh drove maybe 10 miles and we got a flat tire and we we were like we didn't have a spare (laughs) and then the whole thing changed we're still in this beautiful night but it wasn't uh oh what a beautiful starry night like fuck we're stuck (laughs) it's your fault no it's your fault fuck you There was one time too in Arkansas. Another, I had this. I, I, my grandfather died. He gave me this truck, and uh, we we toured in that truck as best we could. But it, the uh, gas fumes were bad for the guys in the camper, so we stopped using it. And I traded it in. Dumbest thing I ever did. Trade this nice truck in on a station wagon. I just wanted the station wagon. I don't know why. And uh, one of those woody station wagons. And uh, so I thought, well, we can have a station wagon and a U-Haul. That'll work. That doesn't work. <laughs> So uh, one we we had to get from I think it was uh, Fayetteville, Arkansas to Oxford, Mississippi, which was doable. If your car doesn't overheat, and it was in the middle of the winter, it was uh, I think it was in January, late January. In fact, it was right before the Super Bowl. It was the Saturday before the Super Bowl, I think, and or the Friday. And so we uh, driving from Fayetteville, cars overheating. We had to pull over, 
and uh, we're probably not going to make the gig at this point. We're kind of worried. And then this fellow drives up, stops behind us, and uh, his name is Carthel Vestal. And he's like, hey, you fellas need some help, you know? And we're like, yeah. He goes, well, there's a, there's a part store about, I don't know, three miles. I can take you over there and get the part. It's just a thermostat. I was like, okay. <laughs> so I jumped in the car. I was like, somebody maybe ought to come with me. So two of us went, just in case. <laughs> Mr. Vestal wasn't on the up and up. But he was a cool guy. He got the part, and he helped us put it on. And we hauled ass to Oxford, got there just in time. I mean, we ran in the door. The place is full of college kids. People was packed. People were waiting throw our stuff on stage and just start playing immediately. And it was the greatest gig of all time. I mean, there was nudity, there was sweat. It was the girls were going crazy. I, and, uh, I was laying on my back at one point, my shirt off and these just awesome, beautiful girls just on top of me dancing. And it was great. And, uh, and after the show, I, you know, I was talking to some of these girls and they were just like giggling and they'd run off and stuff. And, I turned around and my guitar player was like, dude, you got the biggest fucking booger I've ever seen hanging out of your nose. <laughs> like, that must be why they was laughing. <laughs> I thought they was charmed by my personality. <laughs> but we ended up trying to limp that car home. We It still had an overheating problem and we were, it was overheating on the way home and we uh, would stop in the and get water out of the ditch. Now, when your engine's hot, you shouldn't put freezing cold water in it. Is it cracked the block? So we got a cracked block. We got stranded in Durant, Mississippi, and we watched uh, the Super Bowl. In we all stayed in the same hotel room and watched the Super Bowl that night in Durant, Mississippi. And it was the one where uh, Norwood, the Buffalo Bills kicker, missed the field goal. Oh. <laughs> and so wide right, the car became known as Norwood from that point on. <laughs> I used to work at uh, in Austin. I worked at a bookstore for a long time called Book People. It was a new age bookstore down in South Austin. And uh, I worked in the receiving department. And uh, so we'd get promos and stuff. And um, one day I got these promos from Rounder Records. It was two records by this guy named Ted Hawkins. Watch Your Step and Happy Hour. And I thought they looked interesting. Often I'd just keep the promos and take them home and listen to them. So I did, and uh, as soon as I heard that guy sing, I was like, wow, who is this dude? And I looked, and those records were made in early, mid-'80s. This is early-'90s when I'm getting them. And uh, I started playing them for my friends, you know, the guys in the gourds, and we'd listen to them all the time. We even covered some of his stuff here and there. It became a just a favorite of mine. I, I just love those records and love his songs. Uh, he's a unique singer, like, <clears throat> to me, he's um, somewhere like Otis Redding and Sam Cooke. He's got the soulful, gravelly thing of Otis Redding, but the smoothness and the pitch, the purity of Sam Cooke. And then he has these songs that are kind of country, kind of folky, but kind of soul. They're just in a, they're a unique place that he that he laid them in. It's been a big influence on me. There's a really strange backstory too, doesn't he? I, yeah, I don't know much about. I mean, he's a, I know he's from Mississippi, and he he was a street singer in Venice, California, and it seemed like he went through a few different phases where he was happy just being a street singer on the beach. And so, some of my friends, like Ramsey Midwood, Randy Weeks, and those guys, said they know they watched him on the beach, they knew him, and I don't know if they think of him the same way I do, but because to me, he's 
he's just brilliant. Uh, but I guess if you saw him as a street singer on the beach, maybe you would think maybe he isn't so brilliant. But you know, I think he was happy doing that, and uh, and I think every now and then somebody would come along and discover him, unquote unquote, discover him and make a record is what would happen. And I don't think he really liked the music business much. Um, I don't think he liked dealing with that crap, you know, do any of it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I don't, I don't think we do. (laughs) And I, I mean, I know there's some other weird stuff about him. I don't know. Uh, You know, some, some, when I went to Europe a few times, I'd ask people would have stories about him. He he, he had some mental, mental illness stuff too going on. I think Uh, he, he was, he was a little unwieldy. And there was some rumors about this and that. I don't know anything, so I, I'm not going to talk about it. But <laughs> Are you speaking publicly about the project that you're working on yet? Yeah. Yeah, we're doing a, a Ted Hawkins tribute, multi-artist tribute. So we're trying to put it together right now, trying to get everybody lined up for it. And uh, probably be uh, you know another 18 months maybe before it comes out. But uh, we've got a, while, a ways to go. But um, it's going to be good. I'm, I'm really excited about it. I... Uh, I've been turning on turning people on Ted Hawkins for years, and uh, uh, my friend Jenny Finley, she, uh, I played some Ted Hawkins stuff at her Folk Alliance show this past year, and I think on the way home, her and uh, Brian Atkinson, they were listening to Ted Hawkins all the way back from Kansas City to Austin, and they got home and they they called me. They're like, "We got to do a Ted Hawkins tribute." <laughs> So they set up funding for it. They got some money for it uh, from the Lagunitas people, and uh, who are doing a lot of good, good stuff with their money and music. I know they they uh, they sponsor Shaky Graves and a few other bands, and uh, I think they're going to start maybe their own label. Is what I heard. I don't know, but this could be part of it. If somebody listening to this, uh, you know, wants to check him out, where would be the starting point? Well, I think there's. His first record that I know of, well, there's other earlier records, but there's a record called Watch Your Step that I, it's one of my favorite records of all time. I, it's perfect. There's not really a bad track on it. And uh, you can start there and that, go from there. I mean, there's a lot of posthumous things and compilations I think that have come out, but really is Watch Your Step and uh, Happy Hour are the two rounder records that are both great. He did a, he was discovered later by Geffen. And they made a, a record with a bunch of all-star, like, I don't know, Jim Keltner and Carlos Santana and all these, I don't know, all these all-stars. And it's way overproduced. It's just that doesn't sound right. I and mean, there's some good songs on it, but it's not, I don't particularly like the record. And then he died right after that. They were giving him the big push. And uh, he was getting, he was he was going places. And, uh, and he, I guess he had an aneurysm or a tumor. And... Uh, Die pretty quickly. Uh, that came out. South. I mean, for me, it was South Austin. I did, it was cheap. It was the cheapest place to live, and there were abandoned houses. There were crack houses. There were streets you you know I didn't go down certain streets, and I was like on South First and West Annie, which is that's the hoity-toity part down there. there's a, some kind of french patisserie espresso place in the house where i used to live <laughs> which is a not it's good you know but it's weird and that there was this trailer next to our house i can't remember the cat's name who does the neon signs it's right at south first and west annie i can't remember his name i should know it but you know that was abandoned and there was a trailer that's still there or the facade of it's there uh and there was this 
It's this woman, uh, obese woman who never came out of a trailer hardly. And there was always the glow of the TV through the, the yellowed <laughs> window of the trailer that was right facing right in our backyard. And uh, uh, we had a great time in that house, the West Annie house. Um, what year was this? Gosh, I guess, I guess it's 90, 92. Um, yeah, I, I moved to Austin and me and Jimmy found that house. Jimmy Smith, uh, we found that house. It was like two seventy five a month, two bedroom house, and uh, it was uh, so cheap. We split the rent; <laughs> it was awesome. And uh, yeah, and then he moved in Akadoches, and I picked up another roommate. Um, and uh, God, such a great time! It was, it was really one of the best times of my life. I remember there was no air conditioning in that house, but it didn't matter. It was uh, it might be the happiest time of my life. I can recall. <laughs> it was I was carefree. I don't know that. I know Abra Moore lived down the street, and she would ride her bike all the time by the house. Um, there was a guy named Bruce Gay, who's who's a, really a Louisiana guy, but um, he was. Uh, they were living down not far from us. Um, I didn't know that many other musicians. It's just mostly people that I I was friends with that nobody knows who they are, like Sam Morgan and uh, Spencer. There was Spencer Jarman was this guy who was living down the street. He. He got he got thrown in he got arrested for weed because uh like the meter person checking his electric meter saw the weed growing in his backyard and turned him in like what the hell <laughs> uh, he's a great musician and he's still around doing well um I don't, you know there was a lot of uh, that Hovitas was I remember when Hovitas opened um the day it opened I went over because there was used to be no food around there there was nothing there was basically just, there was a few Mexican restaurants, and uh, it was a new one, and I was kind of sick of all the other ones. And, <laughs> and I remember walking over there, and I was one of the first customers of Hovitas, and uh, got to be really good friends with Mayo, um, who owned the place. And uh, you know, it turned out later. I mean, we played there a lot too over the years, and it turned out later, you know, Mayo was uh, part of Texas Syndicate, this big organized crime heroin distribution ring i knew there was shady stuff going on i just didn't want to know right so uh, but he was a sweet dude man and he died in prison you know i i'm still friends with one of his sons i see in fact i'm playing his son's wedding not not too far away next year i think uh that he was a great guy i know that a lot of people i know he was probably not a great guy to a lot of people but <laughs> <laughs> There was a, we lived in a, uh, an old house and it was owned by this um, elderly woman named uh, Miss Wimberly was her name, and she loved me and and my roommate Merritt. Uh, she wanted to sell the house to us, and uh, I think she thought we were married or something. And we we're you know, she 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 raised all of her family there, and she thought we were going to do the same thing. And she wanted to sell me the house for like twenty grand, <laughs> but twenty grand to me at that point, I was like. Might as well be a million dollars. If I had known half of what I know now about, I would have easily been able to do it. But anyway, there was a woman who lived next door to us, um, a black lady who had raised her whole family in her house. She didn't own her house. She rented her house for 50 years and raised her whole family. Her, her, she, her grandkids came over every day after school. Sweetest lady in the world. And then I remember the day they just, they were, they were moving. They were like moving all their stuff. I said, what's, what's going on? They're like, 
well, they, they sold the house and we got to move. I was like, what? They're like, yeah, they're whoever's children sold the house. Uh, and it just didn't seem right to me. I was like, you know, you rent a house for 50 years, you have to have some equity, but no, you don't. And so that's when I knew, you know, things were changing and, uh, people, you know, people started squatting in houses, uh, early on back then. And, um, they started kicking people out of those houses that they were squatting in and that they'd been there for years. You know, a couple of women I knew that squatted in houses that were abandoned for nobody knew who they, who owned them, you know, maybe from the eighties, um, savings and loan thing, there were just a lot of abandoned houses left out there. And so, yeah, we started seeing that, you knew things were changing and, uh, and then you started getting the, uh, the overpriced, um, vintage antique stores on south congress you know which i liked but <laughs> i was like this is definitely a harbinger there we go and uh i think you know i was part of the shock wave of uh hipster gentrification army <laughs> the hga <laughs> and you know east austin's gone through the same thing now i mean east austin that's what's happening in east austin um uh, i had friends back then who lived in east austin and I was like, man, you're crazy. <laughs> so yeah, later I moved. Uh, I moved out of that house and moved in with uh, who with Robin, who would become my wife. In these little apartments, and then we bought a house across the street. There was these apartments there. Uh, they had they had a lot of nicknames. It was, they were just basically really cheap apartments, crappy apartments, and. Uh, so they the the owner this guy Mitch Ely he's a big slumlord in in Austin just total douchebag and um, he uh, he wanted to tear them down and build like a hundred single person occupancy you know and the neighborhood didn't want that and one good thing about Austin is the the neighborhood associations have power you know the city council will listen to what a neighborhood association wants or doesn't want so we we were active in opposing it and we kept him at bay for a long time but i remember they sent this guy um he's a developer to one of our neighborhood association meetings and um uh, he came in he was trying to be real nice and uh talk about all the good things that they were doing for the neighborhood and around austin and how they're one of the the big the biggest uh one, one they, they they um historically preserve properties they're one of the, the the main people in town who are interested in preserving historical houses and we we're like well you just uh cut our oldest house in our neighborhood in half and towed it away and he didn't know that they had done this and yet it was overnight they came in cut the house in half and, <laughs> and pulled the trailer pulled the trailer up and took the house out of the neighborhood it was the oldest neighborhood it was the oldest house it was the farmer who had all that land um you know, way back when that was the house that he, he lived in. And uh, it's crazy. <laughs> this guy had no clue. He's like, oh, oh, well. <laughs> yeah, he was basically laughed out of there. But eventually they won and it's been torn down. And, you know, we tried to save it. A lot of people went to bat for it. In the end, I was like, well, they are dilapidated and it's it's old and I, there's not much you can do. I, I, I've long since moved from that neighborhood because it, you know what happened in South Austin too. Uh, there was no, uh, there was no architectural oversight from the city. I feel like they really dropped the ball in that regard. Where people would come in, take a, take a, a 1950s 
house and they could gut it and and build something else, whatever they wanted, as high as they wanted, as angular and freaky <laughs> postmodern as they wanted. And so you got a lot of inconsistencies architecturally in these neighborhoods now. It's ridiculous. You know, I have friends who live in these nice little houses and they're right next to monstrosities. And I feel like Austin, the city of Austin certainly dropped the ball. It just happened too fast for them. Um, and a lot of it's fueled by the, by the whole real estate scam that went down in the early 2000s. There was just so much money. And a lot, of, a lot of California money, people were selling their houses for ridiculous prices in California, moving to Austin. It's like, hell, yeah, I'll buy that house for two hundred, three hundred thousand. There's nothing. <laughs> I just made a million. <laughs> and then they would build these crazy houses. Uh, you know, I'm not sure why they did that, but that, that was definitely that's definitely a bad thing. I got out of that neighborhood for that, mainly for that reason, because I felt it was changing. When they start towing houses away, there were more than one house. When did the gun store next to the Continental Club go away? <laughs> Just guns? <laughs> <laughs> oh, those are good people. I knew I knew the I knew those people. Um what well, he specialized in like twenty millimeter giant <laughs> guns. I mean he was and those people were like hippies. They're like I don't know, they're like these libertarian hippie types you know they were texas cool. has its own little yeah. strain of yeah of strangeness yeah in fact his wife um judy Akis was her name she was the accountant at the new age bookstore book people where i work she she did the books there cool cool lady um but yeah i, I don't remember why I, I think she just got they just got tired of being down there and they he owned it and they could have stayed but i think at some point they realized you know a lot of people aren't going to be coming down here, just buy guns on the South Coast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, but just guns. I always loved that place. That was <laughs> great name for a store. That's hey, you want guns? We got guns. Yeah. <laughs> I remember being in Austin, staying at a friend's house, and being up at four in the morning and scanning the AM dial. <laughs> and on the far corners of the AM dial, you find some strangeness. Oh yeah, there's lots of strangeness. There's every conspiracy I've ever, uh, <laughs> ones I didn't know existed. Yeah, well, you know, Alex Jones is from there, you know, and he's he's uh, the king of the conspiracies for sure. And he was a friend of Bill Hicks. I don't know if most people don't know that, but there's he hung around with Bill Hicks. Alex Jones did when he was a kid. There's pictures of them hanging out. And there's something about Alex Jones, like his delivery, that reminds me of Bill Hicks. It's, it's manic. It's Sometimes it's violent over the top screaming but he's just not funny <laughs> dude dude is serious <laughs> it's like he he missed the part of this is supposed to be funny uh i was in line <laughs> i went to see a movie it was uh, a kid movie i had me and my kids we went to see a movie uh ratatouille it was about a rat who you know um can cook really great and uh and from the sewers. Anyway, it was a kid's movie. And, and so Alex Jones and his family were behind us in line, you know. And uh, I turned around. I was, like, <laughs> I was like, what's up, Alex? He goes, hey, you going to see the rat movie? <laughs> I was like, yeah, we're going to see the rat movie. And so I insisted to my family. I said, we have to sit in front of Alex Jones because I want, I want to hear where he's going to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I did during that movie is like listen to what Alex Jones, where he would react, which parts of the movie. And he's a cool, he's really a nice guy. And, uh, 
I saw him one time at a, a farmer's market. It was a big sustainability uh, market day, um, and a lot of people were out there. And there was one booth I found. It was um, it had this strange uh, literature that was about population control. You know, they were concerned about population on Earth, and and that's a legitimate concern, obviously, but. Uh, it was strange the way it was worded. I was like, I was asking him. I was like, well, what? I mean, how, do you want to? What do you want to do? Y'all, y'all want to? I mean, you want to fix people, or what? Do you, what do you want to do? Like, you want to make laws that you can't have more than a certain number of kids, or? And they were real vague about it. They were hippy dippy kids, you know. They were just at the booth, and so I saw Alex Jones at the market. I was like, dude, you got to go check out that that population control booth. He goes, where is it? <laughs> <laughs> it was like a bloodhound, right? I don't know what happened. I just let him loose. I want. I should have followed him, though. But. Did, I'm sure he did 45 minutes yeah. right on the radio that yeah, night. Yeah, he probably did. <laughs> <laughs> He's a colorful character. And I appreciate you uh, teaching me about the HGA. That's the, right, yeah. The, the hipster <laughs> gentrification army. That's right. <laughs> they're currently invading East Nashville as we speak. Right, so. yeah. It's a very polite jihad. <laughs> The most polite jihad. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thank you. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Kevin for inviting me into his hotel room here in Nashville. You can find out everything you need to know about Kevin at shinyribs.org. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and pick up a CD, a T-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made. You can buy one of my photographic prints. You can buy one of Amy's records. You can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand-new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.